She says Russian interference in the 2016 election was just as serious an attack on this country as 9-11. Just ahead, we talk with former FBI special agent and Yale University's Asha Rangappa. Hi, thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan, and this is Political Insanity. It's the weekly podcast where Matt and myself try to make a little sense out of our insane political reality, Matt. Because if you feel like the political world has gone mad, well, it has. That's right. Uh, We try to bring a little sanity back to your life by bringing in big names each week to break down the impact of the Trump administration. We've got a really good one today. We really do. And, and a person who can really help us figure all of this out. We're pleased to welcome former FBI special agent uh, Asha Rangappa. That's right. Asha is director of admissions at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. And she's one of the most sought after commentators right now uh, for both print and digital media on national security issues, Matt, particularly the current investigation into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election. Yeah, with more on that and the latest revelations into the Russian investigation, we welcome Asha Rangappa. Asha, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And you've been very busy lately. Matt, I think I've seen her on television just about uh, every other night over the last several months. (laughs) Lots of CNN appearances. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, we have so many questions for you, of course, you worked in counterintelligence in the FBI, so you, I think, have a really good insight into the Mueller investigation. And the, as Matt and I were sitting around talking about this, I guess one question he and I both have is there's been all this hue and cry about whether counsel, special counsel Robert Mueller will issue subpoenas. What are your thoughts about that and why he hasn't already just done that when it comes to— Do you, do you mean to the president? Yeah. Well, you know, that's going to be a last resort. I mean, he, he has issued grand jury subpoenas to plenty of people. Um, he's been interviewing them. He's called in people to the grand jury to, uh, you know, give um, testimony. Uh, but the president is different because there are certain constitutional immunities and privileges that the president holds that he can bring out and end up making this a uh, – you know, litigation, um, a litigable um, issue. And that's not what Mueller wants, because then that draws it out. It takes it to the courts. So what he wants to do with the president is try to reach an agreement to negotiate a voluntary interview where the president will sit down and answer his questions short of him having to issue a subpoena to compel him to do it. And how long do you think that would take? And and I know you know Mr. Mueller. I believe he swore you in. Uh, yeah. How long do you think that will take? Because it seems like, I guess, the new Giuliani strategy, if, if he's the spokesperson, is we're going to take on Mueller. So they don't look like they're look headed towards an interview. So if that's the case, you know, isn't the next step the subpoena? Or do you think Mueller will try to have one more shot at trying to get an interview? Well, I mean, I think that ultimately Mueller will issue a subpoena if it comes to that, if they absolutely refuse. But remember that that also, I mean, this is sort of a prisoner's dilemma, because on the one hand, you know, the uh, Giuliani and Trump's lawyers can force Mueller's hand. On the other hand, Mueller, legally speaking, has, you know, better precedent on his side. We know that... 
from U.S. v. Nixon that something like executive privilege isn't going to shield the president from being able to uh, provide evidence that he might have um, about an ongoing investigation. We know there's precedent for a prosecutor to serve a sitting president with a subpoena. Uh, Kenneth Starr did that to Bill Clinton. Now, Bill Clinton did comply with the subpoena, so that uh, ended up, you know, settling the issue in terms of, you know, it didn't have to go any further than that in terms of challenging it. Um, but, so there, you know, Mueller has uh, various precedents on his side that is going to make it very costly for the president to lose if he chooses to take this all the way to court. And then he's kind of back to square one, where he's going to end up having, uh, being compelled to testify, um, you know, rather than being able to sit down and uh, at least have some say in shaping the interview. So I think both, this is a little bit of a standoff. This is constitutional chicken. You know, mm -hmm. like who's going to blink first? Um, but I, from what I know about Mueller, he's not going to blink, and he will take this all the way if he has to. That's kind I think of ultimately he has less to lose. That's sort of my follow-up for you. What is Robert Mueller's end game, based on what you know about how this counterintelligence investigation is proceeding, and based on what we know about how Bob Mueller has conducted previous investigations, particularly with organized crime figures? Yeah, I think that we have only seen the tip of the iceberg with regard to what Mueller is investigating. A counterintelligence investigation, I, I, I'm glad you brought up organized crime, because um, foreign intelligence services are kind of similar organizationally in terms of, you know, there's tentacles that are going out where known intelligence officers have agents on the ground. There's a huge network there that, that the counterintelligence piece of this is uncovering. Um, you know, where the president fits in, though, is really with a separate thread of this, which is the criminal investigation into obstruction of justice. And he needs the president to talk to him uh, and give, in his own words, his reasons for doing the things that he did before and after he fired James Comey. And that's because the obstruction case really turns on the president's intent in, in firing James Comey. Was he trying to stop the investigation into Russian interference. And, you know, really, the person who can speak to that is the president himself. Now, I suspect that Mueller has plenty of evidence that he could still do a report without the president's testimony, but I think it's pretty critical for that aspect of the investigation. With your expertise in counterintelligence, uh, try to answer this one. Uh, clearly, uh, the evidence that you know Russia tried to interfere in the election in lots of different ways here is overwhelming. The bridge is, is the Trump campaign connected to it and is the president connected to it? What kind of quality of, of intelligence do you think Mueller has on that second part? Is, is when, when this report is issued, which I assume is going to be issued at some point, what kind of intelligence do you think we're going to see? I think a lot of it will be the kinds of techniques that you use in counterintelligence investigations, uh, size of surveillance, uh, physical surveillance, people who have flipped double agents, basically, um, intelligence gained from our allies who are also watching some of these same people, SIGINT, that our NSA picks up. 
um, a lot of these are going to be much, very difficult to contradict because they will be picking up these folks communicating and talking, uh, you know, in their own words. So that is really what the intelligence case is based on. Um, I don't know how much of it we will necessarily see, though, because it is, that is all highly classified. Right. There's yeah. a reason that you don't, you know, usually counterintelligence cases rarely see the inside of a courtroom, and it's because the FBI and intelligence and the intelligence community doesn't want to disclose how they've gotten all of this information. And I think that's a pretty, <clears throat> I'm glad you asked that question, Matt, because what it means is that what we do see that will come out in the criminal sphere, the criminal charges, are just going to be slivers of what Mueller uncovers that has actually crossed the line into criminal activity, that they can build a case independently and, um, you know, have uh, evidence that they can disclose in the courtroom. So a lot of these people are looking at these criminal charges and saying, well, what does this have to do with collusion? Um, You know, I think what I describe it as is, you know, if someone showed you a movie but only allowed you to see four or five scenes and then Mm -hmm. told you to make sense of it, um, you're not going to know all the characters and plot lines until you see the whole movie. And I think the question is going to be whether Mueller does produce a comprehensive report that's not necessarily about criminal violations, but really about exactly how this all happened and who was a part of it. And you've spoken, Asha, in the past about how the intelligence community in this country has uh, some pretty unique tools to chase down the money trail, the digital trail, particularly in terms of the Facebook investigation. There's also a significant money laundering investigation going on. What are your thoughts about where that track of the probe is leading uh, and and everything we've been watching in recent days around President Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, as well? Um, well, there's a lot of things that you covered in that. Yeah, I know. So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, 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 the short answer is that there are several different threads. So if you think of, like, the counterintelligence investigation as, like, one big four-lane highway um, that Mueller is going down, and as he uncovers different things, uh, you know, it's like little exits that are going to go off that are going to spin off their own investigations. I would say that the investigation into what Russia was doing is probably divided into a few big categories. There's going to be a hacking investigation into exactly how they hacked and who, you know, hacked into the DNC's server. I think there's a whole social media piece. We've already seen indictments on that front um, with the 13 Russian nationals and the three companies. I think there may be a campaign finance piece. Uh, where Russia may have been using um, either Americans or American organizations to illegally funnel contributions. I think there might be a part about intrusion into actual voting machines, um, which we've heard about uh, only briefly, shockingly, but um, Mm -hmm. I think that that's going to be an aspect. And then in terms of, like, the people that were participating in this in some way or another, I think they're going to pop up. I mean, we have Manafort, we have Gates, uh, who are in communication with people they knew to be affiliated with Russian intelligence, you know, while they were in the campaign. Um, Michael Cohen, you know, that one was referred outside of Mueller, so maybe his that piece doesn't necessarily get tied back. Um, 
but they clearly uncovered some criminal activity there, too. So um, a lot of these different pieces uh, that I think we may not know how they all fit together for a while. When you're looking at the, the big picture, and, and you've, I mean, you've just stated an important fact that we, we obviously don't know a lot, but just what, what you've seen and, and, you know, whatever the public reports have been, can you imagine a report being written now by Mueller saying he hasn't found some evidence of conspiracy or co- collusion, however you want to put it, uh, on the part of the Trump campaign in, in Russia? Yeah, I you know, I am constantly confused when people say there's no evidence of collusion. You literally have the campaign manager right. of the Trump campaign who has, I mean, I, I forget how many charges he has, but he's been indicted in two different uh, districts. Um, you know, he has all these charges, which include charges for acting as an agent of a foreign power, he had, we know we, he had two FISA orders on him, which is only ordered by a court if you can show a court for an American citizen that they are knowingly engaging in clandestine intelligence activities. Um, we know that under Manafort's watch, the Ukraine platform in the Russian, uh, in the Republican National Convention was changed. We know that when, while he was on house arrest, he was still essentially spying for the Russians by, you know, writing fake op-eds for, you know, pro-Russian uh, op-eds for the Ukraine. I mean, I, you know, you, I, I get that you have to kind of have some background and put it together, but, like, to me, there is evidence of collusion already. It may, maybe it was just, you know, Manafort and Gates, but to say that there was nothing there is really bizarre to me. I mean, you, you have to not be looking. And I think that when you just look at the sheer number of Russian contacts with this campaign, it's simply statistically improbable. I and mean, we've never seen this before in any other presidential campaign. So, um, you know, I really don't know anymore how to answer the people who claim that there's no evidence at all or not even smoke that suggests and, collusion. And you've been vocal all along about your belief that the Russian interference in the election was the equivalent of a terrorist attack on this country. Do you think that uh, many Americans, they're dismissing it as something that's not really central to their lives, not at the top of their list of things they're concerned about. How how, how concerned are you that, I guess, the country isn't taking this as seriously as as the way you phrase, phrased it, as it really was the yeah, equivalent of a terrorist attack? Right. Um, I'm very concerned about it. And I think that there are two issues um, or two reasons that, that people aren't taking it seriously. Number one, this was invisible. We don't have buildings collapsing and people dying and, you know, um, terrorist videos that are claiming victory or whatever. And that's good. We don't want people to die. But on the other hand, this, you know, those terrorist attacks are centralized. This has permeated kind of the entire democratic fabric um, and pillar of our country, which is our election. And I think people really need to be concerned about that. The other um, issue that I think uh, makes it easier for people to dismiss is not just that it's invisible, but also because you have the president of the United States saying repeatedly that the investigation itself is a hoax. So I 
think people, you know, in some ways, it's kind of a continuation of what the Russians wanted, which is a just kind of information distortion. You don't know what to believe, and that piece is succeeding. And I think the really uh, scary part is that I think relative to a terrorist attack, this has much more long-term consequences. Because I think that once we delegitimize our institutions, once we lose faith in, our, in the integrity of our democratic processes, that is much harder to reverse and correct than, say, fixing security loopholes in an airport, for example. Um, you know, we're going to end up at a spot where we're not going to be able to get back to, you know, where we were. Uh, before all this happened. Asha, what, what is your view of, of the, the current state of mind of, of agents in the FBI right now? Because basically we've gone through the last two years. First, the FBI was accused of really helping Donald Trump. Uh, that, that, that seems like a long time ago, but basically that was the idea <laughs> yeah. with, you know, the Clinton investigation and Comey coming out with the information. And, and so the idea was that the New York office was somehow uh, really rooting for Donald Trump. And now after the election and, and everything that's gone on with the current president, there's criticism that, listen, the FBI is going after the president, going after a Republican president. What What is the st- with your contacts in the FBI, how are they holding up, and what's their view of all this? I mean, the FBI is a very large organization, right? So I always hesitate to kind of answer questions about what is the FBI thinking, only because I think that perpetuates this idea that that it's this monolithic, you know, homogenous entity right. that has, like, one view. Um you know, the people that I know who I've spoken to, I think, are certainly a little demoralized by, you know, the sense that the FBI is thrown under the bus every day. Right. Um, and I think mostly because it makes it harder for them to do their jobs every day. It's not because they care about, um, you know, the political outcome one way or the other, but... You know, as agents, they have to go and talk to people. They have to talk to Republicans. They have to talk to Democrats. They have to talk to immigrants. They have to talk to, you know, anybody that is there that can give them information. And to do that, they need to be trusted. Um, They need to be seen as people who are uh, doing what's best for the country. Um, They have to go testify in court and be believed. And so all of these things, I think, definitely makes that piece of the, you know, the, the basically the core job of the FBI much harder, and I think that can be incredibly mm-hmm. uh, demoralizing. Well, that's kind of a, a downer note to end this on, but uh, 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 I'm so glad that we were able to get you on the podcast to share your insights. Great to talk to you. Hopefully we can circle back to you at some point as this proceeds. Absolutely. Please feel free to reach out anytime. Thank you so much, Thank Asha. you so much. She's Asha okay. Rangappa, former FBI Special Agent, Director of Admissions at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Thanks, Asha. I'm going to hang up the phone now. And Matt, what a great discussion. Right. And really gave us a, a background on what's going on and, and a, kind of a broad view of the whole thing. We'll keep doing this meanwhile. Uh as we, through 2018, keep seeking interesting guests to talk to here on Political Insanity. I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan. Keep listening. Keep listening.